Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and a while back we had four really interesting guests come to West Point for a panel discussion on women in security. After the event, I got the chance to sit down and continue the conversation with the four of them. I'm Michelle Malvesti, and I'm currently Professor of Practice in International Security Studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at the Tufts University. Michelle Schmidt. Currently the Director of Intelligence for Special Operations Command. Jen Buckner, I'm the Deputy Commanding General for Joint Task Force Ares at U.S. Cyber Command. Jan Easterling, I'm the Managing Director and Global Head of the Cybersecurity Fusion Center at Morgan Stanley. Each of these four has been remarkably successful in their careers in national security, and it would be difficult to find a group who is better positioned to talk about this topic. In the conversation you're about to hear, they discuss some of the challenges that can face women in the military and in security-related fields more broadly. But they also talk about the cultural changes they've witnessed throughout their careers, the role of mentorship and their experiences on both sides of mentorship relationships, and both the history and future of women pioneering new paths in national security. Before we get to the conversation, just a few quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the absolute best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Well, thank you all four of you for taking some time uh, to join us for uh, this episode of the MWI podcast. Uh, I kind of want to start when when Captain Cadell, who uh, here uh, in the Defense and Strategic Studies Department or program, uh, told me that she was putting together this panel. I thought it was fantastic. She asked if I'd be interested in recording a podcast with you, and I said absolutely. And then I spent a lot of time thinking about how to frame the discussion. Um, I'm, I guess, maybe um, particularly sensitive to the question about whether or not we should really focus on the fact that you're for women in security, professional, successful women in security, or if the proper way to frame it is you're for professionals in security who happen to be women. Um, and I think I'm going to sidestep that question altogether and, and, and use it to kind of throw back at you and ask you, how do you for think about, or how do you sort of conceptualize how we should think about? Um, yes, please. Okay. So I think it should be the latter. And I was actually talking to uh, Colonel Mark Ray prior to our um, the panel discussion that we just did, and he he's actually the one that pointed us out that um, you know the fact that we're women is kind of one thing, but really the amount of experience that's uh, between you know that we have between the four of us is pretty um, extraordinary, really from uh, from the tactical you know all the way up through the through the not even strategic I guess you know national level experience, and I hadn't I actually hadn't really thought about that before. So, um, you know, I think between uh, all of us, we've got um, experiences, like literally, you know, for, for those of us who are in the Army, like, um, you know, what is going on on this particular piece of ground um, and defining it in very, you know, specific terms, all the way up to here's the type of policy that we need to have for, you know, Syria or something like that in the, in the CT fight. And when you think about that, that's that's just a wealth of experience across the board. It, even you know, if it was uh, four men in here, four women, or whatever, um, that um, that I think um, you know, this panel was a, a was a you know, and this discussion here is a good way of kind of bringing that out. Uh, so does anybody else have anything to yeah, add? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I I agree with Michelle um, that it should be more about 
you know, our accomplishments as people uh, than as women. But as we mentioned earlier today, you know, and I bring a little bit of a different slant at this now that I'm out of the Army and in the private sector, we spend, or at least I spent, a lot of my time in the military um, making sure that, you know, people thought I wasn't differentiating myself as a woman. You know, you were trying to be effective and successful just in an environment, in some places in the tactical army that was very physical uh, and demanding, and you wanted to show that you could be just as effective no matter what your gender was. Um, and as I've gotten into different environments, in particular the last environment I was in where uh, it was at the White House and we had an all-star female team of leaders from Susan Rice to Lisa Monaco to Avril Haines, it almost didn't matter at all there because, you know, it was just, it was a matter kind of, to Michelle's point, there were great women who were mm -hmm. part of the national security apparatus making really difficult decisions for the President of the United States. Now that I'm in the private sector and again, sort of a, a um, smaller minority in women in finance and women in technology, there's a very deliberate effort to illuminate and lift up women who are on the career paths in technology and, and security and trying to get more women in it because we're really sort of at 18 to 23 percent and that number has gone down precipitously from the days of the great you know, Rear Admiral Grace Hopper when she invented COBOL back in you know, the, the uh, 60s, I guess, or the 50s, and it was sort of closer to 40, for, 40 to 50% women. So all of which to say, I'm now a lot more comfortable like highlighting the fact that you know, I am a woman in security and making things deliberate, like being a part of a women in technology group to help um, forge an easier path for women to go into these areas where they wouldn't necessarily go into uh, from a young age, and that's not a military thing, but it's just, you know, from a very sort of young school age. You look yeah. like you disagree with me. No, I don't disagree at all. <laughs> I, I, just, I think it's a really unique point and a unique perspective, um, which I, and I think it's super helpful. I was more, I was kind of shocked by the percentage that had dropped yeah, precipitously. I would have thought it was the other way around. Yeah. I had no, no isn't idea. No, yeah. Isn't it funny? It's, yeah. And it's, um, it's a little bit depressing in some ways. Um, and why I think if there's one reason that like strong, powerful, successful women should actually like, you know, spend time highlighting that, um, that's one good reason. Because I don't know if that's the percentage. It's certainly interestingly going up in the military, um, yeah. but it's going down in technology, down in financial yeah, services. I didn't know. Yeah. So, so you, go ahead. No, I, I, think, I think your point is the, the interesting thing, and I'm curious how all of our um, experiences and our thoughts on this subject may not have even evolved, but we've actually been illuminated after 20 plus years of professional experience, mm -hmm. where maybe it's also not just the fact that you've transitioned from the military, even from government, into the private sector, but that also you now have 20 plus years of professional experience where you have established yourself in that, in that domain where perhaps you no longer feel um, um, at all uncomfortable of highlighting the fact that you are a woman, where perhaps earlier in your career you may have want not, a, not wanted to have distinguished yourself or differentiated yourself from that which was um, far more common in the field. No, I think that's, I mean, Michelle and Jen should comment on that, but I, I, I think that's exactly right. right. You know, we wanted to be successful on our merits. Yeah. And it's finally after those 20 years that you feel comfortable in who you are, the fact that you are a little different and do bring some perhaps different skill sets to the table, um, and that it is more about differentiation uh, as both a leader and contributing talent to a 
to a unit, to an organization, to a leadership team, as opposed to trying to be like everyone else on the same path. I think that's extraordinarily freeing. And I think we're also, as we highlighted in the panel, the fact that all of us have been the beneficiaries of some phenomenal mentorship from primarily men that there were some women who were champions for us, who paved you know, a path that we could follow. And the fact that um, you know, as we speak to these cadets and junior officers, that their path is completely different um, is also you know, not lost on you know, the fact that perhaps we helped to pave that way. So it's a little bit easier for them and, and perhaps they can come to that realization a little bit earlier in their personal and professional lives to embrace um, and follow a path that that's important to them on um, on either of those you know per personal professional uh, priorities. I, I want to come back and talk about the mentorship aspect that you talked about. But um, so we had uh, several months ago we had Captain Shay Haver up here, um, one of the first two women to graduate Ranger School and one of the first two women now to become infantry officers. Uh, and we we were talking before she came about what type of event we were going to do with her as she was speaking, and whether or not we were going to do a podcast and what we'd feature. Because we talked about maybe she doesn't want to be known as the first woman. Maybe this is a big burden for her, and maybe she just wants to talk about being an infantry officer, talk about ranger school. Um, I wonder if, has it ever felt like a burden for any of the four of you when you're asked to do even events like this? And you, and you might agree that it's important, but do you ever kind of wish, I, I just wish that I didn't have to? Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, because uh, it, 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 it frankly is an additional burden, it be, and, but it's, um, I think I probably wouldn't have done something like this before, um, but now, um, now, I think it's, now I think it's just important to do this type of thing, um, because it's not about what's, what's, uh, what I'm comfortable with or uncomfortable with at, at this point, it's kind of what's best. Uh, for the organization, I think, but I, 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 I will say it's a little bit, um, uh, you know, in, in a recent year or two, I've been I've been asked to speak or participate on in a, in a couple different panels or speaking engagements, and it generally has to do with you know women in national security, women in defense, women leadership, women something or other, you know, and and you know to be perfectly candid, it would it would be also nice to have as many invites just to speak because of uh, the roles that I've been in uh, and just based on the experience that I've had. But I certainly get more invites to um, um, you know the forums that have to do you know with women something in the title. So I don't know if that's a burden or if that's just something that I've noticed, I guess. But I'm just saying as an outsider, you know, I followed uh, General Schmidt and General Buckner's career. Um, and I don't, I never got the impression that anybody um, singled you out in any way because you were a woman. I mean, even from the very early days, you both had just these incredible reputations of being, um, nobody ever said she's a female, or, like inf incredible officers. That's always been my impression, kind of being a little bit on the outside when you guys were spending a lot of time downrange and in the, in the Army. I'm incredibly, like, proud of both my classmate and Michelle um, that you guys are both GOs because I never and we never had these you know women officers when we were growing up I don't remember one I guess maybe Claudia Kennedy you know when we were very young and maybe Mary Legere but I never felt like I was mentored by them you know I had male role models and the fact that yes not only are you incredibly successful officers but you are women general officers I, I just think that's fabulous for some of the younger women officers now as well and I think it's important for them. So, um, 
so I do do these things, even though I'm this maybe not my favorite thing to do, um, but I do do them because I, I understand now that this is, it is important to be, um, and that we are visible, and it's important to talk about this. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think you've accurately captured how how conflicting it is a, a bit, uh, given our experience in um, trying to. Uh, just be good at whatever mm -hmm. it is what we were doing, um, but the importance of these outreach efforts. Um, but I would add that I um, had the privilege of seeing Captain Grice speak at a recent Founders Day. So 600, you know, people represented from across uh, now decades um, from the academy, and you know, just hearing her speak, how important um, it is to hear her. Um, stories because I think for many of us uh, women graduates, you know, we are hugely proud and um, of of what Shay and, and Kristen have done. Um, but also, you know, she just connected with a whole other subsection of graduates through her Ranger School and just infantry stories that are, you know, things that connect us um, in our shared backgrounds where, you know, we've all been out in the field suffering and there's something that is, uh, is really magical about that um, team building experience. And so I think she won over, you know, um, a, a number of graduates and currently serving uh, graduates. So the importance of these, uh, of the message as well as the messengers, I think can't be understated. The, and I should point out that she did a fantastic job. Whether or not she, you know, feels it's a burden yeah. or not, she, she uh, Captain Haver, when she was here, did, did a phenomenal job of kind of balancing both of that, being mm -hmm. able to um, talk about what her experiences were like as one of the first two women to finish it, but also being able to connect with all the male cadets in the audience and tell them what to expect when you go to Ranger School. Um, so I want to turn then to, to mentorship, um, you know, from experience that you've had at the tactical level, but also then in the White House and National Security Council between the four of you. Um, I imagine that mentors have played a role in in your life, uh, in your professional lives. Have you has has your mentorship experience differed based on whether or not you had a man or a woman mentoring you? As as we were talking about earlier um, in the panel, my most important professional mentors have been men, or I should say, um, certainly in the formative part of of my career. Um, I'd like to think that they were mentoring me because they saw um, the professional potential and not specifically because I was, I was a woman. And I never had any, any sense that that was um, you know, a driver. But they certainly created opportunities for me um, and they certainly provided um, professional skill sets and kind of foundational knowledge that enabled me to bring that forward into, into my career. Uh, later on in my career, um, I was privileged to work um, at the White House and on the National Security Council staff, where I had great, um, uh, uh, the, the, the opportunity uh, to work for Dr. Condoleezza Rice, um, as well as Fran Townsend. And Fran Townsend in particular served as an important mentor uh, for me and showed me uh, um, a different way in terms of being a, a strong woman who is respected, but, but again, she didn't come at it from the point of view of being a woman. She was a respected professional, counterterrorism professional. And those were some of the lessons learned that I tried to bring forward um, into my own relationships and experiences. I, you know, I, I, I have um, only been mentored by men, um, only except for like very recent year, um, 
it, since I've been in this job, I've, I've had some uh, some women reach out, but um, and they were they and the men were phenomenal. I is mean, that just a function of the fact that you're in essentially a male-dominated industry? I mean, is it yeah, just that there no, are fewer women? No, I think women so. There weren't that. There weren't. Um, <coughs> In most of the units that I've been in, there weren't women senior to me to begin with. I, I actually like whoever said it. I think it was you, Jen, in the panel. I talked about peer or you, yeah. you, Jen, yeah. peer mentors, Jen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> peer, peer, <laughs> peer mentors. Which, I, frankly, that's what I fell back on in terms of uh, you know our you know Jen and I and well and the three of us in particular for Bragg, but it was it was uh, my friends. Uh, my the, the women who were um, close friends to me, I think we helped each other quite a bit. But in terms of mentorship, any any difference? Um, it, it was solely male mentors back then. I, I couldn't tell you if they mentored me any different than they did some of their, you know, my, my male counterparts. I don't know. I didn't I didn't sense that, but maybe they did. Um, but I but they were um, fantastic. I mean, I've had really involved leaders throughout my career, which I, th which frankly I think is has made all the difference uh, for me. So. Yeah. And what about uh, now, as as you're all you know, successful professionals, more senior, as you mentor, uh, you know, junior professionals, do you do it a little bit differently? And the reason I ask is, um, I think there, you know, there this book that came out recently called Athena Rising, and it's kind of I think the subtitle is How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Mm -hmm. um, how suggests that maybe it's different, and. I'm just wondering if, if that if that's the case. If if any of you had have experienced that as you've mentored junior junior professionals. So I just I have an alibi because I do want to like all of you mostly men uh, male mentors, um, but I will highlight Lieutenant General Mary Legier who yeah. has been a champion for all of us, um, you know, at every level, and I think has done a great deal behind the scenes to set conditions for us to just achieve on our merits as opposed to be, you know, the first or the token or, or whatever that is. And um, and I first came across her as Major Legere. That was five years into, I mean, I don't think I, you know, rarely saw a female captain uh, in my first, you know, in my lieutenant years, but she as a major, I knew right then that was what it looked like, but she was just really good at what she did. So she was kind of the first example or role model that I had um, and really remained so, um, throughout my career. So I, I kind of want to highlight that, and I think to your current question, she also exhibits that um, that mentors, it's not looking the same, or it's really having a connection in some ways, and perhaps the personal connection is what translates to the professional mentorship. Um, but you know, you can't assign or engineer it too deliberately that there has to be some connection with a mentor, um, but usually that's a shared value system or some background or something about, you know, potential or, or ambition as opposed to, you know, you and I are women and therefore we're, we're going to have a, you know, professional relationship. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't work. Is there that expectation sometimes that uh, that you, like, this is a role that you should be expected to take to mentor young women? Yeah, I mean, I talked about yeah. that in the panel. I get, yeah, yes, I get that from my, my male friends uh, very often that they want, they come across a high-speed young female officer and they want to link us up, which is totally fine, and I, and I absolutely take that on. But it, going back to General Buckner's point and uh, Jenny Shirley's point earlier in the panel, it doesn't work I, if you don't, you gotta, you have to kind of know each other or get to know each other. I mean, and you have to, as a mentee, sort of want that as well. 
I will go back. General Legier is the one that I was thinking. Of. I just didn't say her name within the last year, who's been incredibly helpful in my in my current job. So so yes, um, I'd, I'd like to highlight that as well. Um, but yeah, I get I get asked that a lot, and I have no issues with it, other than. Like, hey, also take this on. Don't just because she's a woman, you, you need to align her with a, another woman. We might be completely different and not, not you know, sync well at all. Right. So, I, I think that point is is important. That um, there's sometimes a, a, a bit of this myth of sisterhood. That that all women um, will will bond together. That um, that we have same experiences, shared experiences. Um, but we have different, you know, different experiences, different worldviews, different outlooks, um, and sometimes those can be not necessarily in tension with one another. But that it is, um, I think, a part of the broader conversation that you will have. Or again, gets back to your very first question, you know, do you talk about, you know, women in security or pe people who are professional who also happen to be women? And I think. Women just have, have will have different experiences and world views and points of view on this um, that also can evolve over time as well. I wonder if, you know, in terms of uh, for the two of you who are currently on active duty, if you've seen changes in, um, presumably you have, but if you could kind of describe the changes that you've seen in military culture surrounding these issues, and then and then for those of you not in the military currently, if you if you maybe have. N notice any ways that the private sector, say, for instance, treats these issues differently than, than the military? So I, I, I think, um, you know, we, we talked about how early on we just, we just try to assimilate. You don't want to differentiate yourself. You don't want to create a, an us and them kind of thing. I never wanted to do that, never wanted to separate myself out. Um, I, I, in recent years, I've actually been asked on a couple different occasions to uh, one was one was in in Baghdad to pull all the women together on our little fob and talk to them, and I was asked this by a, a male NCO. Um, and then another time at another unit, I was asked to do the same thing, and I thought, well, they they don't they don't they're not going to want that, you know, um, because I'm just thinking I I wouldn't have wanted that necessarily, you know. Uh, but in both cases, um, some of them absolutely did want that, and they appreciated it. So I think. Um, I think women are more comfortable maybe like, hey, yeah, let's get together and talk about this. And they're less concerned about, um, you know, unintentionally, you know, forming a division, you mm -hmm. know, within the ranks. They seem, they, you know, so I'm generalizing, sure. they seem to be more comfortable <laughs> with this stuff. Some of them absolutely were not still, because I just asked, hey, you got, you know, some did not want to do it. They were forced to, and they sat there and didn't say anything, and then others, others appreciated it. So I think it, I think it depends. Um, but uh, I do, I, um, I do think the younger women now, um, <laughs> as, I, as the, um, both the G2 for the 82nd and the chief for the 82nd, just a couple years ago, you look now at the younger lieutenants, and, and now, they're, now they're coming up you know, in the infantry ranks and the combat arms ranks. The women, I mean, they, they are extremely confident, extremely capable, um, extremely fit. Um, they, they uh, I mean, and they just think everything is wide open to them, and that's just the way it is, you know. And at first, it almost—it's almost like, hey, you know, we, uh, you know, we work for this kind of thing. But it, it, I got over that in about two seconds. This is exactly how it should be. I mean, exactly how it should be. And it just—it it makes me—I'm uh, glad that this is kind of the place that um, we seem to be at now, where it's just yeah, this is just sort of what's expected. They can do whatever they want. It's just what's expected now, you know. 
So that's good. Yeah, that's such an important development from a talent management perspective for the Army. The fact that, um, you know, this, uh, the, the our current batch of soldiers and leaders don't feel limited in that way and that they can grow up to be anything, um, whatever specialty they want and, um, and whatever success looks like in that, in that um, specialty is, I think, so important for our force. Uh, and so the idea that they wouldn't self-limit um, I think bodes well really for our force. And, and I like how you highlight the subsets of that they're increasingly okay with differentiating themselves. So there's, you know, there's some women, there, mm -hmm. there are those in the STEM fields, there are those who you know, like to do other things. And, and this idea that you can be different and have different um, experiences and tribes, but still come together as a diverse uh, you know, um, group of people for a common mission purpose within your unit. It's it's vastly different um, in a way that you're right. I'm not sure that people um, truly appreciate, but um, but that's a good thing. Yeah. That that's yeah. shows how far we've come. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as somebody retired a couple, several years ago now, I'm really thrilled to hear that, because as I pointed out at the panel, you know, the one thing that it took me a long time to truly appreciate was the importance of being your authentic self um, and to really be true to yourself as opposed to just, you know, necessarily trying to fit in into what was, you know, a highly male-dominated environment. Um, so I think that's, that's fantastic, particularly to hear that, you know, um, and there's probably a bit of self-selection, right? These are women who, sure. you know, um, know what they're getting into, and so it's fantastic that they have that self-confidence. I think, you know, just from a strategic, a macro view, though, you know, women are 50% of the planet, and then if you look at where senior women are in government and, you know, through all industries, it's still a pretty small percentage. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'm a huge believer that that needs to change, and it needs to change a lot faster than it has changed. I think it's fantastic, you know, when we were here, we were 10%, now Cindy says we're at 25% women, that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, the world, I truly believe, will benefit from more women in senior leadership positions. Because if there's one thing that I think about, and this is a little bit of a generalization or a cartoon, but women, in my view, in my experience, tend to um, lead with emotional intelligence and empathy a little bit better. And I don't know if that's, you know, again, a generalization, but that's sort of my experience. And I actually think that that's really an important um, facet of uh, leadership. So I just, all of which to say, um, you know, from a private sector perspective now, I feel a little bit more of a burden and responsibility, not burden, a responsibility and an opportunity to continue to shine and highlight women in, in leadership positions from a really young age. I mean, we bring in like sixth grade girls from the storefront school in Harlem into the Cybersecurity Fusion Center to show them wow. things that we can do, you know, trying to get more women in technology, trying to get more women in maths and STEM, and it's got to start at a really yes. young age. And so, you know, you guys are fantastic examples, but women are still a minority in the world, and we need women's leadership, we really do. So I think it's hugely important. So is there any sort of, you know, and maybe this is, when, you, when you're asked to, when you're asked to mentor, you know, a, a bright young woman um, in your field, uh, what what's kind of the first piece of advice that you would give give them? And and I guess for, for listeners who are listening, like, wh what's the piece of advice that you think? And maybe it's the piece of advice that you heard that was really meaningful and impactful on you when you were when you were junior, or that you wish you heard looking back at it now. Well, I mean, it's the advice that I. I mean, it's the same advice I'd give to 
a, a young man or a young woman. You know, it's just I, you know, it's the same sort of things. But I mean, you know, the, the first is a do you enjoy what you're doing kind of thing. You have to you have to do what you are passionate about, what you enjoy doing. So that's sort of like step number one. Just try to figure out. Um, it, I guess, uh, backing up, I mean, I usually I will tell people you have to sort of get a, um, be, you know, become self-aware, understand what, um, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what do you enjoy doing, what are you actually, what are you passionate about? And that sounds like, you know, some very basic questions, but it's surprising, especially, um, you know, some young and mid-level officers, they don't quite have a handle on some of that yet. So first is sort of self-awareness um, is sort of the first piece, and then uh, then it gets to just kind of going back to the, the basics on a lot of things, I think, kind of basic leadership um, sort of skills. I really like, I, I say it in a different way, but I really like the idea of, you know, um, you know being authentic, but you can't be authentic, you know, you have to kind of know yourself and, and, and kind of, yeah, you know, know what, know what, you know, when you are most comfortable in your own skin kind of thing. And that takes some self-reflection, you know. So the first step for me, um, mentoring people, is always like helping them a little bit with self-reflection, and then we kind of get into, you know, the rest of it. But I, I echo that as well. Um, I, I don't think, in terms of my conversations I have with my students or others who sought me out for having um, a career in national security, that I've given a piece of advice to a woman or to a man that I haven't given to to the other. Um, to echo exactly what Michelle just said. Um, she used the term, you know, kind of find, figuring out what you're passionate about. I think one of the one of the challenging things, especially for students, cadets at an institution like this, um, they're all talented. They're going, they're smart. They're going to be good at a lot of things. But just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you will necessarily enjoy it. And sometimes that may take a few years to tease out of really having that introspection to differentiate what is it that you really enjoy versus what is it that you've actually been been good at and having sometimes having the courage to step back from something that maybe you've been good at or perceived to be good at and others want to build you for you know um, and and create opportunities for but to say you know what my path may actually be a little bit bit different um, but the one of the vice piece of advice you know that was given to me early on and that I, I try to impart to others is really just put your head down and do the work um, you know, sometimes I feel, um, especially when you're early on in your career, you're, you can be um, too focused on the next opportunity, the next job, um, as opposed to actually just put your head down, do the work, learn the core fundamentals of, of the job, um, and the rest will take care of itself. Doesn't mean that you don't be smart about making wise career choices. Doesn't mean that you don't look for opportunities. Uh, but that's different from the individual who's too concerned about people who are passing them by or focusing on the next the next job. I think um, to build on that, I, I like the way that um, you've highlighted this idea that um, just in doing the work, and I, I would add being open to possibilities. I mean, I think all of us really represent, um, you know, completely different paths, um, and yet, you know, success looks different on all of us. And so, but I couldn't have engineered this. Right. You know, there was right. no, um, the fact that I did the work, and, you know, an opportunity that existed for me as a major was not open to me as a lieutenant. So if I had thought to, do much about, you know, I have to be on this timetable to get this done, um, wouldn't have, uh, I, I think, presented some of the opportunities that, that did emerge 
Um, I also think that, you know, a bit of, um, I mean, Jen highlights the idea of empathy, but also some intellectual humility, that you always have something to learn from the people around mm -hmm. you, from the soldiers who, you know, who work with you, and um, this idea that you can, um, you have a lot to learn from your peers, your subordinates, um, in addition to those who are your champions, and um, that, that sometimes presents some different paths that open up opportunities that, again, you, you can't engineer um, or conceive. Yeah, not engineering your career is, is, is key. You can't engineer your career. I don't think if any of us had tried to end up in the positions that we've had or that we are now, I, I don't think you could have drawn, drawn the line and have met all of the, all of the opportunities. A lot of it's luck, timing, opportunity, um, but I think remaining open to what service and you know can look like in, in different realms, um, and how your contributions can be adapted from one domain into the next. Which I think is a really important point in a military context because the cadets here at West Point are going to commission, and and they know what a career path in their branch looks like. They know, and so they you know it's platoon leader time. It's you know you've got your when you go to the career course, when you do your KD jobs. Um, but within that, there's so much more variability, and, and I think it's an important point to highlight that, hey, your career, there's actually a lot of space in here to do interesting things and to go on and, and find success um, maybe on a path that isn't necessarily as rigid as... On some different, um, according to different timelines as well. Mm. And I think that's also important from a um, personal perspective to... Um, for men and women who are also trying to, you know, decide the right time to have a family or, you know, to prioritize a relationship. And so I, I think that idea that there is, there are, you know, infinite possibilities on, on how to move forward and progress, uh, just and it being comfortable that it looks different for everyone. You know, so it's interesting, like, I, I generally agree, you know, you don't want to engineer your career. It's why I always rejected any advice given to me by my branch officer in the military. <laughs> um, I'll tell General Axoni that. But yes, <laughs> yeah, except my first branch <laughs> officer. I think I ignored his advice as well, but he's a great mentor to me. But there's, there's something to designing your life. You know, there's a book called Designing mm -hmm. Your Life, and I often recommend it to people who are thinking about what's their next career. And it's about designing a life um, to be happy. Because mm. I think going back to Michelle's point, you know, if you like what you're doing, who you're doing it with, who you're doing it for, if you feel like you're making an impact and you're relevant, you're going to be happy. How do you design that type of life? Um, you know, now that I'm out there speaking a little bit more and, and speaking at a lot of women's events, I have a little talk that I give. And it's funny, it kind of goes back to my time in the military. I call it What's in Your Rucksack? And it's like this 25th Infantry Division carry this rucksack, and I pull out all these books and things like that. Um, and so I have all these like uh, pieces of advice that I give. But one of the things that I come back to is this great book uh, that I recently reread by Viktor Frankl. You know, it's like mm -hmm. Man's Search for Meaning, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a heavy book. But it, but the core lesson of that book, and of course Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, and he talks about his time in the death in the camps and and how how horrible it was, and then became a very famous and successful psychiatrist. But you know, the core lesson of that book is, is uh, the last human freedom, the one that no one can take away from us, is our freedom to be able to choose how we respond to the circumstances of our lives in the world. And at the end of the day, like when people are miserable, and the Army's a lot about values, but it's all, all, also about being cold, wet, tired, and hungry. <laughs> it's <laughs> an like important bonding experience. <laughs> exactly. And professionally developing. It's just, and it's not like making it through a death camp, but you know, choosing to, it's a choice. Choose to be happy, choose to be optimistic, choose to be enthusiastic. You know, because, and it goes back to what I said at the thing, like, every, life is so short, every day is precious. I wish that I could go back to my 22-year-old self yeah. 
and say all the things that you're going to stress about and have anxiety about, you know, are not important. Are not that important, right? Just, you know, design a life for happiness. So, and it's so hard to do that, right? Because we're all talking about the same thing, how to be comfortable in your own skin. I think you're not comfortable in your own skin until you're around 40. <laughs> That's been my observation. Yeah, it's only you to speed to those but life lessons. You, yeah, but when you achieve that, it is incredibly liberating. It's freeing, right? yeah. I would like to highlight the when once when Michelle Schmidt, as the 82nd Airborne Division G2, called me at 5 in the morning when she was on the drop zone and it was raining. And you were under a poncho liner, and I said, you can choose to be happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that when my hot water was off this morning, and I had to take a freezing cold shower. I was like, oh, this is a great start to the day. <laughs> well, thank you, all four of you, uh, for making some time for us. We really appreciate it, um, and, and excited to be able to kind of record this and, and let it get out there, because I think there are a lot of people that can, that can uh, benefit greatly from a lot of the things that we talked about here. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could take just a few seconds and leave a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way you can help us reach new listeners interested in the type of topics we feature. Thanks again.